Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Limcooler, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist at the University of Kentucky. Through the Beef Bits Podcast, we will share current news, management tips, new research, and other issues related to beef cattle production. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on beef cattle topics. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits podcast and find the information useful. All right, welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits podcast. I'm Jeff Lemcooler, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Chris Toich. Chris is the uh, forage specialist at the Princeton Station. Chris, how are you today? Doing well, thank you. Good. Chris, as we get started, why don't you uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself and uh, your background and your kind of focal area? Sure. So so uh, I'll start way back. Um, I grew up on a crop and livestock farm in Northeast Ohio. Um, after high school, I, I lacked direction, so I went into the Navy, and they gave me direction for four years. After I finished up in the Navy, I spent a year in uh, – Germany, working and living on a German agri- uh, German dairy farm, and uh, attended a German agriculture school. Came back, I got a bachelor's and master's degree in agronomy from uh, Ohio State University, and then I had the good fortune of getting an assistantship at the University of Kentucky, and I spent uh, three years, a little over three years, at the University of Kentucky, and um, my project was actually focused near Hazard, Kentucky, and we looked at stocking rates for beef cattle on um, reclaimed mineland soils. So after I graduated from the University of Kentucky, I went went on to Virginia Tech, and I worked at a research station in the southern Piedmont of uh, Virginia for 17 years. And um, at the end of the 17 years, I had the opportunity to come back to the University of Kentucky to the uh, University of Kentucky's Research and Education Center in Princeton or Western Kentucky, and I've been there since. So um, I've been here now about five years. Been a great move. Um, Dr. Lacefield left some big shoes to fill, and I, I hope I'm doing a halfway decent job. Well, if, if nothing else, you just put on a, a different type of shoe and uh, are well, wearing it quite well. I know um, you sure are well respected across the state with your knowledge and expertise in forages, and it, it'll be good for you to, to share some of that with folks uh, that are listening today. Um, as we look, you know, today it's a little bit rainy. I don't know what uh, you guys are getting, but since last night, we've had almost two and a half inches of rain already. Yep. We, we haven't got quite that much here, but it's nice and overcast today, and we had a little bit of rain. It's been kind of spotty, like you would expect in the summertime. So I, I can almost do the the uh, weather forecast in the summertime for Western Kentucky. It's hot and humid with a chance of afternoon thunder showers. <laughs> that almost sounds like Florida, Chris. You're living <laughs> in the right place, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the reason I thought we'd chat a little today, we're, we're kind of late summer, and, and in a lot of times, uh, most years, this tends to be a bit of a challenge for our cool season pasture um, and forage mixes that begin to suffer a little bit from the heat. And in and, and a lot of years, soil moisture is really beginning to get limited and they may not be as productive. And so uh, as we think about cool season grasses, maybe 
kind of just give us a general idea of what really makes them grow best? Why are they cool season grasses and what kind of conditions really help them thrive? Sure. In, in the primary uh, two classes of grasses, we have our cool season grasses and our warm season grasses. And our cool season grasses, they're like things like tall fescue and orchard grass and Timothy and Kentucky bluegrass. They have what we call a C3 or cool season photosynthetic pathway. And, um, and that's best adapted to carrying out photosynthesis when the leaf temperature of the plant is at 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's when we're going to have peak photosynthesis. And that kind of makes sense when you think about the distribution of growth during the summer months. So we're going to have great growth in the spring with our cool season grasses. So we'll kind of have a hump of growth in the spring. And then the, the growth will decline as we get into our summer months. And it's going to pick up again and we'll get a secondary growth um, hump of growth in the fall when things start to cool down again. So growth of our cool season grasses are really temperature limited in the summer months. Even if we have adequate moisture like we did this summer, we still we get some growth in our cool season grasses and they stay green, but but we don't get a tremendous amount of growth because that growth is temperature limited. Now on the opposite end of the spectrums are warm season grasses. They have what we call the C4 or warm season photosynthetic pathway. And they've kind of evolved from our cool season grasses to get around this problem of limited growth during the summer months. And um, so they have all their growth right in the middle of the summer. So June, July, and August will be the primary months when you get a lot of growth with our cool season grasses. And they can kind of fill that summer slump in in our forage systems in Kentucky. And in some situations, um... You know, you, you mentioned that temperature sensitivity, that management and or how closely we graze things may even influence um, some of the temperatures that those plants may see. You, you did some work not too long ago, as I recall, uh, looking at maybe residual height and, and temperatures. Is that right? Yeah. So we, we had a um, study uh, two years ago. We had a summer intern that did this study. And it was um, in an established tall fescue stand. And um, what I had this summer student do was either defoliate that stand to, to one inch or to four inches every week. So he went in there and he did it with the lawnmower. And then we installed temperature sensors right at the soil surface in the crown of the tall fescue plant, and then four inches below the soil surface. And what we found was how much residual we left on that pasture had a huge impact on the temperature of the crown of the plant. On, on hot days, we could be as much as 20 degrees warmer where we had defoliated to one inch versus four inch. And that's gonna, yeah, I mean, it's huge. And that's gonna impact the persistence of that plant long-term in pastures. And that's one of the reasons we want you not to graze pastures too closely, especially cool season pastures during the summer months. And, and I'm assuming, too, then, that that's just going to increase that uh, loss of soil moisture if we're ever a bit limiting when you got 20-degree differences in sure. soil surface temperature. Sure. We didn't, we didn't measure um, soil moisture, but that'd be a great thing to measure um, in this particular study. But, but we do know that when we defoliate closely and we're exposing that soil to solar irradiation, that we're going to lose more moisture from it. So, so moving on then, we've got uh, these C4 or, or kind of uh, 
summer type forages and these these C4 type plants that will be more productive in higher temperatures. What what should folks really think about if they're wanting to look at maybe incorporating some C4 type plants into their either grazing system or even in their hay production system? So, um, I mean, there's a couple different classes of C4 plants. We've got our annuals and our perennials. So, um, you know, as you move west in the state, we start to see more perennials, warm season grasses and grazing systems, especially as we're getting into the purchase area in, in south into Tennessee. Um, in in pro probably the primary one that we would see would be Bermuda grass, and that's a, a perennial warm season grass. And, and that can be used for either hay or um, grazing. Uh, so that's a, a good solid uh, grass. And we think we're seeing a northern movement of um, perennial warm season grasses in our grazing system. So as our, our climate moderates during the winter months, it's allowing some of these warm season grasses to persist in, in grazing systems where we haven't seen them before. The other classes are warm season annuals. and um, I think annuals like sorghum Sudan grass and Sudan grass and pearl millet, uh, teff grass would fall in there and crabgrass would fall in there too. They they can make a good um, summer forage. I, I think there's I think it's important to think about um, the system as a whole. So when I think about forage systems in Kentucky, they should really a profitable forage system will be based on a well-adapted perennial sod. And then these annuals can supplement that sod and they can be used in several different ways. Um, for example, you could use them as a renovation crop. So say I've got a, a weak perennial pasture and I wanna come back in and reseed that pasture. Well, I could go ahead and graze it in the spring and then I could spray it out, come back with a, um, summer annual, get some good grazing or hay production off that summer annual during the summer months, and then come back in the fall and reseed that pasture after I spray it one more time. So that's a great way to use annuals. We can use those annuals to either renovate a pasture or to convert it from a toxic tall fescue into a novel endophyte tall fescue. Um, another, another way to use these in um, grazing systems is if we have animals that have a real high nutritional requirement in the summer months, generally speaking, warm season annuals tend to be pretty good in forage quality. So if I'm a grazing dairy or I have stalker calves or I want something to wean calves onto, so something with a high nutritional requirement, then, then a warm season annual may be a, a good choice in that type of a system. So is there, is there, um, any certain one that you would consider, like uh, you mentioned ryegrass or um, um, crabgrass, you mentioned teff, you, you mentioned uh, sorghum sedans. Is there any certain one that you would think fits in a in a certain situation better than another? So, um, well, I'll just I'll just talk about a couple of my. I think my favorite warm season annual grass would have to be a sorghum sedan grass. And it's got, it's got s several characteristics that I think make it a good warm season annual. One is that it can handle a different seeding depths a little bit better than some of our other summer annuals. So it's a little bit easier to establish. It's very vigorous. So it gets out of the ground in of our summer annual grasses that probably has the highest uh, production potential. Um, so there's different, 
types of uh, Sudan grasses, sorghum Sudan grasses. And there's a, what we call um, a type that has the brown midrib trait. And that's associated with the midrib of the plant as kind of a tan or a brownish color. And that's a phenotypic or an outward expression, something that's different inside that plant. And what's different is that it tends to have lower levels of lignin in that plant. And that makes the fiber in that plant more digestible in the rumen, and that can increase animal performance. So if you have a choice between a non-brown midrib variety or brown midrib variety, um, you know, a brown midrib's a good choice uh, to use in forage livestock systems. Um, we have some really good data from our variety testing program on varieties that are well adapted to Kentucky. So if you're interested in that, you can find that data on our forages website. You just search uh, UKY forages and it'll be the first thing that pops up. And there's a tab on there that says variety trials. Just click on that and it'll take you to our variety trial data. Um, Pearl millet's a good Good summer forage. It's not quite as vigorous or and has a little bit lower yield potential than our sorghum sudans. Um, but its big advantage is that it doesn't form prussic acid. So that's one of the challenges with the sorghum species, whether it's sorghum sudan grass, sudan grass, forage sorghum, or even Johnson grass. When we start to get frost in the fall, the cells rupture and there's precursors in those cells that kind of come together to form prussic acid or hydrogen cyanide. And, and that can cause poisoning in livestock. Not real common, but it can happen on occasion. So we just need to manage around those by removing livestock when we start to get frost in the fall. Pearl millet doesn't have that. So that's one of the advantages of pearl millet. So if you're planting a summer annual a little bit later and you'd like to, like to go into that period of the year when keep grazing it when it's starting to frost, then pearl millet may be a good choice for you. And there are there are several varieties of pearl milk that do have the BMR trait now, so um, so one of those. What I've noticed, especially this year, is that um, our our pearl millet stands under the same management as our sorghum Sudan grass variety trials. They've kind of fallen apart a little bit more this year than I than I've noticed in the past. Um, our sorghum Sudan still looks really good even after three cuttings. Our pearl millet is is thinning out quite a bit in late summer. Which is interesting because I always um, thought I had heard folks say that pearl millet tended to be better suited for grazing than sorghum sedan. I think one of the reasons that pearl millet, um, people say that about pearl millet is that there are dwarf varieties available in the pearl millet. So it doesn't get quite as tall as the sorghum sedans. Now, some of the newer sorghum sedan grass varieties have incorporated the burkitic dwarf trait. So they tend to be a little bit lower growing too probably not quite as low growing as the dwarf pearl millets. Does it have anything to do with how they might tiller back from uh, being grazed versus kind of coming back out of the stem or anything like that? Do they differ between sorghum Sudan crosses and, and um, pearl millet? So, so pearl millet will be a little bit, um, have a little bit greater potential to tiller at the base of the plant. Um, some of the sorghum Sudan grass varieties, the burkitic dwarfs and especially have a little bit higher tillering potential also. So there are some varietal differences in terms of, of tillering. And I, I know you've heard this because I've heard it several times and, and to jump back on your sorghum sedan. So a lot of times uh, when we talk about those, people will throw out the word sudex and, um, and they think of that sudex as being a, um, 
a hybrid uh, indication, but that's that was just a variety name, correct? Right, right. So, so um, we do have crosses between uh, sorghum and Sudan grass, and we call those sorghum Sudan grasses. Sudex was one of those crosses, and uh, that was just a variety. We've got some really good varieties now that have the brown midrib trait and in pretty good yields. So, um, so they're my favorite. Um, Sudan grasses tend to have a little bit finer stem and they'd probably be better adapted to a hay type management um, where we're trying to cure that, that forage as dry hay. Um, they tend to have, depending on the variety, a little bit more disease this time of year than we would see in our sorghum Sudan grasses. And I'm not sure, it has to go back to the breeding, I guess, um, in terms of disease tolerance and those. Um, all the summer annuals can pose a challenge in terms of conserving them as dry hay. So uh, we like to talk about them. They have tremendous growth and, and great yields in the summertime, but man, they can be difficult to get into a, a hay bale, dry hay especially, because they have fairly large stems in them. So one of the management practices that we stress when we're trying to make dry hay out of these is we've got to have some type of conditioning system on the mower. So if we're just cutting them down and letting them lay, I mean, it could be weeks before, before they dry out. We've <laughs> yeah. got to crush that stem to, to let that moisture escape from that stem. And even then, it's still hard to get them cured, especially in a high rainfall area like Kentucky. Um, so the best way to conserve those as conserved forage would be to um, put them up as baleage or haylage. Um, because we can cut it, we can let them wilt down to the proper moisture, then we can roll them up and wrap them. And, and that's the best way to really capture that high quality forage with these summer annuals. So then as you, as you look at those, um, now I guess we should make that distinction and further make the distinction because we talked about um, Sudan grass. And, and I remember as a, as a kid growing up, um, one of our, uh, friends had sheep and they used to plant uh, Sudan grass and graze it with the sheep. You know, sheep are a little smaller mouth and, and tend to um, uh, kind of be that intermittent between a, a grazer and a browser and they tended to do pretty well on it. But um, but you also have the sorghums and the, the sorghums then are, are even going to be larger stem, right? And probably better for chopping. Right. So, so, um, so uh, forage sorghum is, is really best adapted to uh, a one-pass harvesting system with um, kind of like similar to chopping corn silage. And there's tremendous, one of the neat things about our sorghum variety trial, so we've got a forage sorghum variety trial at the station, is the, the difference in the physical structure of those plants. You know, like when you look across a corn variety trial, everything looks pretty similar. Forage sorghum variety trials, we've got varieties that are six feet tall, and we've got varieties that are 12 feet tall, some of the older varieties. And the 12 feet tall varieties produce a lot of dry matter, but a lot of that dry matter is in the stem because they have longer internodes, or that's that stem between the leaves. Um, they tend to be 8 to 12 inches versus a, a dwarf type, which would be 3 to 4 inches. But being that tall, they're really susceptible to lodging. So when you get a... a a strong summer thunder shower or a hurricane that comes up through, a lot of those will lodge over and then they're a real mess to try to harvest mechanically. 
Some of the newer um, forage sorghum varieties are what we call burkitic dwarfs. So they only get six to seven feet tall at, at the final height. In, in um, working with those for over a decade, I have some varieties that I've never seen lodge one time in, in over a decade. So those are really a big advantage. And the yields are, are a little bit lower, but again, the, the proportion of leaves to stem tends to be higher with those because we have a shortened internode length on those. So they don't have less leaves because they're shorter, but, but the stem between the leaves are, are, uh, is smaller. And so higher, higher digestible fiber, then probably when you look at it on a, a milk per acre or, or animal performance level, it's not going to be much different then, right? Yes, that's right. And, um, and again, you would want to select one of the varieties with the BMR trait. So the brown midrib trait that would have uh, lower levels of lignin in it. Um, and, and I think they feed a little bit differently and you, you would know better than me, uh, versus corn silage. So in corn silage, we have a lot of starch. So a lot of the energy, I guess, will come from the starch in that corn ear and those grains. And, and that's to a lesser extent with the forage sorghum. So we tend to have a little bit less of the, we do have a seed head and, and um, it gets inside at the soft dough stage. So we do have some starch in there, but it tends to be a little bit less. I think the proportion of um, the fiber in the forage sorghums tends to be a little bit more digestible. So uh, anyways. Yeah, so the that's that's good kind of analysis, thinking about, you know, when you might use these and what you might use them for. And again, the, the sedans is kind of, sedan grasses on the one extreme that might be your best option for dry hay production. Your forage sorghums are on the other extreme. That's a one pass, probably chopping and, and putting it in a an ag bag or, or some kind of handling like silage. And then you've got your sorghum sedans, which um, are in kind of the middle there. And that gives us the option probably then of making something like baleage. Yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect way to, to lay those out. Um, and then, and then the, the both the sorghum sedans and the sedans could be grazed if we wanted to use them in a grazing system. Um, yeah, that's a really good way to lay it out. Uh, one of the challenges with the forage sorghum that I'll just mention is that um, they tend to be a, a, a little bit higher in moisture than corn silage when we ensile them. So, so traditionally we would ensile corn silage, you know, starting somewhere around 65% moisture, and that would be at half milk line in the in the corn ear. Um, if we do soft dough with a um, with a uh, forage sorghum, we're going to be closer to 72% moisture. So it's going to be about 5% moisture, 5 to 7% moisture higher than a, a corn plant. And that scares some people when they're ensiling them. But my, my experience was is they ensile fine, even at a little bit higher moisture content. Are you promoting the use of an, uh, some kind of an inoculant then, or? Um... I, I haven't, um, but that's certainly a, a um, that's certainly a possibility uh, is to use some type of an additive to enhance fermentation in those. But generally speaking, we get very good fermentation on in the um, in the forage sorghums. What, one thing I did want to mention about the forage sorghums that I forgot to talk about is that one of the differences in a forage sorghum in a corn in the silage system is that forage sorghum is just a lot more drought tolerant. 
So, um, so if we get into a dry spot with corn and corn is um, going into the reproductive stage, corn just kind of shoots its tassel out and goes to pollination, even though the environmental conditions are terrible for successful pollination. Um, forage sorghum is a little bit different of an animal. It, it'll get into a pretty dry period and it'll just stop growing. So it'll look pretty miserable and it'll stop growing, but when the rain comes, it just resumes growth. So it's a little bit different of an animal than corn. And it can actually introduce a lot of drought tolerance into a, a silage system. Now our yields are gonna be um, a little bit lower with a forage sorghum versus a corn. And um, so the best fit for a forage sorghum would probably be not on your best corn ground, but on land that would be kind of marginal for corn or if you're planting later than you really want to for a, for a silage crop for corn. What about, what about cost of, of establishments? That's one of the things sometimes people ask is, is it cheaper um, with sorghum than it is for corn? So the, the seed for sorghum is gonna be much cheaper. We would be planting um, somewhere around um, six to eight pounds of forage sorghum seed per acre. We go on a population, so that's gonna be around um, 70 to 90,000 seeds per acre. Um, and it's going to be much less than a corn that has stacked traits in it. So, um, so that could be an advantage also. Now, the other cost associated with harvesting is going to be about the same. Nitrogen uh, management will be a little bit lower nitrogen rates with forage sorghum. It tends to be a little bit more efficient at using nitrogen. Um, so the overall cost of production will be a little bit lower with forage sorghum. So we're trading off some of that maybe lower productivity for also a, a lower maybe cost per pound of dry matter per acre. That's right. Yeah. So that's that's something to think about, and and that's a good point. I never really um, thought about taking some of that marginal ground that would give you maybe lower yielding corn than what you'd like to see, and putting your sorghum sedan crop or your forage sorghum, sorry, crop over there on that. That's a, that's a really good way to look at that. We, um, I worked with a producer when I was in Virginia. He had a, he had a, a well, he's a veterinarian and then they raised uh, replacement heifers for uh, dairies and he would use corn silage, but he got so discouraged with the corn silage. He was on kind of marginal soils in the Piedmont and um, he just had failure after failure with his corn silage crop, and he just went to forage sorghum completely um, right before I left. You also did some work over there. Maybe it was with this gentleman about uh, interceding forage sorghum with corn for a crop too, didn't you? We did. We did some some work. It was at the research station in the southern Piedmont region of uh, Virginia, and we actually did some mixtures of of corn and uh, forage sorghum at different rates. And what we found is when we added as little as six pounds of um, forage sorghum per acre to our, our normal corn planting for silage, that we had the highest yields. And it was significantly higher. So we, we planted these stands for this study a little bit later than we would to, to mimic a, a less than ideal time for planting corn. So it was me pushing the envelope for silage corn. And in the southern Piedmont, it got hot and um, and dry. And normally, our corn did not produce as well as we would have liked. So that was a great way to 
to add a little bit of drought tolerance to your um, silage system just by adding a few pounds of uh, sorghum seed. Yeah. It, and what was interesting, Jeff, is that, that I thought I was doing something original, and then I went to do a presentation in the animal science meeting one time, and uh, and I found this paper from, like, the night, early 1900s where they had done almost exactly the same experiment with uh, corn, and, corn and sorghum. <laughs> uh, well, sometimes we have to go back and repeat that to make sure that uh, yeah, varieties right. haven't changed and some of that. So, uh, you know, it, it's good to pull up some of that information again. So, so Chris, we, we kind of went through those um, sorghums and that pretty well, but um, we, we haven't really spent much time on maybe warm season grazing um species that we might consider you you talked about bermuda grass mm -hmm. um one of the things i think that um you know you mentioned the encroachment of bermuda grass coming further north but there certainly can also be differences in varieties in bermuda grass and productivity right right so traditionally um traditionally improved bermuda grass varieties have been what we call sterile hybrids so they have been um select they don't produce viable seeds so you would have to actually dig parts of the plants up that we call sprigs that'd be crowns and roots and rhizomes of that plant and then transplant them into another field usually a tilled field and uh and that has really limited bermuda grass use in the northern transition zone because we never really had the the same sources for sprigs and the right equipment to really get them established um and uh, and what has facilitated the use more use of Bermuda grass as we move north has been um, the development of cold tolerant seeded Bermuda grass types, and we can establish these like any small seeded forage crop. We prepare a, a, a fine but firm seed bed, and then we we can broadcast those seeds onto that soil and just call to pack them in. And we actually, I, this week, I actually went and visited a demo site that we have on the other side of the lakes here in Western Kentucky, where we um, worked with the producer to plant a uh, cultivar of seed of Bermuda grass. And the stands look very good in that field. And it's been four years now. I think it was the year after I came, we started that, that demo. So we're going to have another field day there this fall. Well, that's good. I think... I think we have up here um, at the um, little research station uh, two stands of seeded cold tolerant Bermuda that have been in pushing 15 years now, I think. Really? Yeah. You remember what cultivars those were? I believe they were Wrangler. Yeah. That's, you know, I've tested, I had a long term test in Virginia where we had um, seeded Bermuda grass cultivars in for over a decade. And Wrangler was not my favorite, to be honest with you. It it um, it was slower to establish, in my experience, and not as productive, and a little bit more tolerant to drought stress in the summertime than some of the other seeded variety trials. We did an interesting study. So I, that data from that long-term variety trial, um, a, a researcher at ARS did a long-term study analysis that looked at the sensitivity of those varieties over time to different stresses. And what he found was that um, a variety called um, Mirage, 
was one of the least sensitive distresses. So it wasn't the highest yielding variety every year in, in some years, but it was never the lowest yielding. It was kind of in the middle and had the most consistent yield over time. It's kind of an interesting analysis. Um, you mentioned that soil establishment, and I, I, I would caution folks to um, uh, maybe not have too high of expectations of yield that first year, even maybe two years. Uh, that was one thing that I remember when, when they were establishing the second field up here was it, the first year they were thinking it was almost a failed stand. And by the time they got through the second year, it looked a whole lot better. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, so that first year, there's a lot of hand holding that goes on with new Bermuda grass stands because the weed pressure is usually pretty high in those. And what you need to do is just kind of keep it clipped and let light get down to those Bermuda grass plants. And, and a lot of people think, well, I've got a complete stand failure, but if you can take a step in, and there's a Bermuda grass plant, then you've got to stand. It's just going to take a year or so to really get it to fill in. And once it gets filled in, you'll be in good shape. Um, so control broadleaf weeds and keep your uh, weedy grasses like uh, crabgrass and goosegrass and foxtails. Just keep them clipped, keep the stand open. And, uh, and by the second year, it's going to look a lot better. And by the third year, you'll have a really good stand. With regards to Bermuda grass, what about fertility? So that's um, one of the challenges with with um, not just Bermuda grass, but all the summer annuals. Uh, the summer annuals also, whether it's sorghum, sedan grass, pearl millet, you've got to have good fertility. So we want to have a pH that's around 6 to 6.4, somewhere in that range. We need to have phosphorus and potassium levels in that medium to medium plus range, ideally. And then we need good nitrogen management. It, it hurts my heart when I see a somebody that went to the, the trouble and the money of planting a, a summer annual stand and it's just standing there and not growing because it's nitrogen deficient. So we've got to have good nitrogen fertility and that means about 60 to 80 pounds of nitrogen in establishment. And then as we cut it or graze it, we can come back with a little bit more nitrogen somewhere in the range of 40 to 60 pounds after each cutting or grazing if we desire regrowth on that plant. And that nitrogen fertility is not only related to dry matter production, but also crude protein in the plant. So nitrogen is closely tied to protein levels in, in warm season grasses. So it's important not just uh, yield-wise, but also nutritionally for um, to have a good nitrogen fertilizer program. So uh, you, I was trying to remember, you did some work with um, kind of a... A, a mixture of a bunch of these warm season varieties and um, uh, did some grazing work with those for a couple of years. Tell us a little bit about your rationale be behind that, taking and, and mixing in a lot of different species and then a little bit about what you found out. <laughs> so, I, so I had a graduate student, uh, Kelly Mercer, she just graduated and um, she'll be starting the job in Pennsylvania at the ARS unit there uh, shortly. Um, Kelly did a study where we had a monoculture of sorghum Sudan grass. It was a BMR, good, good solid variety. And then we had a simple mixture. It was uh, sorghum Sudan grass uh, mixed with some pearl millet and some uh, soybeans. And uh, the, that was our simple mixture. And that was things that you could just go to your local farm store and get. And then we had a complex mixture and had 12 different species in it. We had sorghum Sudan grass, Sudan grass, pearl millet, corn, um, 
cow peas, soybeans, uh, annual espadiza, crabgrass, uh, corn. Sunflowers? Oh, yeah, sunflowers. Sunflowers, which, by the way, were not the animal's favorite species. I couldn't get them to eat them in our little mix when we had yeah. them in there. Sun hemp. Um, we had some sun hemp in it. Anyways, we had 12 different species. So, and, and the reason we did this was we thought there could be some some benefits for the soil, and I think there still may be some benefits for the soil in terms of having this diverse um, mixture. Uh, and our hypothesis was is that the animals would do better on this diverse mixture. They had legumes and all these different forms in it and so forth. But that's not what we found. We found consistently the animals did the best on a, a BMR sorghum Sudan grass. And, and we think what may have happened is that um, we replaced some of the dry matter in that, that sward or that pasture with things that, that were less digestible than the BMR sorghum Sudan grass, like a sunflower. And in um, that reduced animal performance. And it was um, a, a fair, fairly significant uh, reduction. So somewhere around um, three to four tenths of a pound of average daily gain a day. That's significant. Yeah. So, um, so, so having said that, there may still be some ecological benefits that we don't realize from having a diverse mixture like that. But in performance-wise, the animals tend to do better on just a, a, sorg a good BMR sorghum Sudan grass. Well, that's so. why we do these things because, um, you know, there, there has been some colleagues of ours in other states that um, have been promoting some of those complex mixtures and um, from a from more of a soil health standpoint and that but at the end of the day when we think about the system as a whole we, we need those to be sustainable also to be able to cash flow and get animal performance at the levels we need to have a viable income uh, while also hopefully having some soil health benefits and um, so I, I think that's good, good thing that you went through and, and did that work to kind of help look at those things. You know, I, I tried some mixtures too, not as complex as what you were doing, but you know, we tried the cow peas and my experience with the cow peas where they were too slow coming on. And by the time we did our first grazing, we grazed the cow peas off and got very little regrowth. And I think that's going to be the same with soybeans. Um, so there are some, things we need to really consider about how we're going to manage those stands and those mixtures. If it's a, a one-time really late harvest and going in and grazing it down hard, then those complex mixtures probably have some, some benefit to them. Yeah. One of the, um, one of the challenges that we had was getting the seeding rates, right? And really, we really need more work on that. Um, and, and you hit on something that, that I think is very important to realize is that, Things like cow peas and soybeans and sun hemp and some of these other um, forbs and legumes, they they establish a canopy or they come up much slower than a, than something like a sorghum sudan grass or a pearl millet. And so it's really important um, that we cut the seeding rates on the grasses way back to allow those legumes to get established. I think that's one of the negative things that we didn't do in the study is we, we had our our seeding rates were a little bit too high for our grasses and it gave us a great stand, but, but it was a tremendous amount of competition for those legumes that we're trying to, to get established. 
good point. And especially too, like turnips, you know, and the brassicas and that they, they don't like competition at all. Right. That, that's a good point. So, so Kristen, let's, let's just real briefly touch on one of your, I think recent uh, grasses that you've kind of come into liking pretty uh, much and that's crabgrass. Yeah. So, so crabgrass is a, is truly a summer annual grass. So, and but the difference between that and say sorghum sudan grass or pearl millet is that it will reseed itself so it's a prolific reseeder so it'll produce a seed crop for next year it so it kind of behaves like a perennial not quite like a perennial but kind of like a perennial because it reseeds itself and that's much different than a sorghum sudan grass or a pearl millet um, it has a lower growth habit so you know it may get up to your knees if it's really mature but but generally speaking we would want to graze it when it's about 10 inches tall and graze it down to about you know three or four inches um, to keep the forage quality up once per year we want to let it go to seed so that it'll produce that that volunteer seed crop for next year uh, animal performance is is good on crabgrass but we found in a say that we did uh, last summer where we compared a pearl millet and a crabgrass that the BMR pearl millet the animals actually gained a little bit more in the BMR pearl millet. Um, crabgrass is a nice, it, we kind of think of it as a, a weedy species that's going to take the farm over, but it's not really like that. It's kind of what I call a, a species of opportunity. So for it to be in a stand of grass, it's got to have a space. So if we're in a, a good, thick, tall fescue stand, we can spread as much crabgrass seed as we want on there, and we're never going to get any crabgrass in there because there's no space for it. Where we often see crabgrass show up is where we have a thin spot in the stand. So where we have an open spot, and that's um, Dalrymple at the Noble Found, who was at the Noble Foundation, said we need about a six-inch spot for a crabgrass plant to really grow and be productive in the stand. So. Commonly where we see volunteer crabgrass show up in pastures, those pastures have been a little bit overgrazed in the spring or the summer, and, and those cool season grasses have thinned out, and, and warm season annuals, and sometimes perennials like Bermuda grass will come into those stands. Um, so um, it, it's a good it's a good species and a lot of people like it. We've got some operations that are doing grass finishing and, and that's their primary uh, base in the summer months. And then they'll come back in the fall with an annual ryegrass interseeded into those crabgrass pastures. And uh, that'll give them some production until June. And as the annual ryegrass or the small grain plays out in the spring, that crabgrass will germinate and come back. And now this crabgrass is a little different than what I've got all in my yard, right? So, so there's tremendous variation in ecotypes of crabgrass. Um, some are more productive than others, and there's a number of different, it's probably half a dozen different species that we have in Kentucky. So um, the ones that have been selected for forage production have been selected for higher yields, a little bit more upright growth, and, um, and some of them are a little bit more vigorous when they get a stab during establishment. There's probably about a half a dozen named varieties, and we actually have a crabgrass variety trial if you're interested in looking at that. And you can find that on the UK Forages webpage. Um, so generally speaking, they're they're a little bit more consistent in higher production than what you would find in the yard. Although sometimes farms will have a pretty good what we call an ecotype of crabgrass on their farm. 
So if that's working for you, then maybe you don't need to go out and spend a bunch of money on crabgrass seed. You'll just start to manage what you have. So all those things that we talked about, how we manage our grazing, we want to rotationally stock it. We want to make sure that our fertility is good. We want to make sure we're putting a little bit of nitrogen on because crabgrass, like other summer annuals, likes nitrogen fertilization. That's a that's a good point. And, and that can be even said with uh, another one like Johnson grass, that um, if we've got Johnson grass and you're grazing it, cattle love Johnson grass and it's pretty high quality. You can, uh, you know, manage it a little bit to try and promote a little bit more growth on it as long as you're not in a grain production area, let's say. Um, but from a grazing standpoint, it 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 is a pretty decent summer uh, perennial. Yeah. So just to be clear, Jeff and I are not promoting the uh, the establishment of Johnson grass, but Sometimes it's a resource that's that's available on the farm and and you have to make a decision of whether you want to utilize that resource or whether you want to fight it. And many times the, the right choice is to start to utilize it. And Johnson grass actually thrives under a hay type management. So where we cut it and then give it rest. I mean, Johnson grass does very well. And like other summer grasses, it responds well to nitrogen fertilization. I think it's important to remember that um, that Johnson grass and any summer annual grasses, as the plant gets larger and more mature, you know, quality is going to go down, palatability is going to go down. So it's like any other forage species. Um, interestingly enough, when I was in Virginia, I did a lot of work with the state prison system, and unbeknownst to many people. They, the largest cow herd in Virginia was actually the state prison system. And uh, they had some farms in uh, southern and eastern Kentucky, I mean, Virginia. And uh, they had some bad Johnson grass fields, and, and they tried to figure out what to do with those fields. And at the end of the day, we decided that instead of trying to get rid of the Johnson grass, which was probably never going to happen, uh, even with row cropping, you know, there was going to be a, a load of seed in the soil that would come back over time. We decided just to make those summer hay fields, and they started to manage those, those fields. They added nitrogen, they cut it at the boot stage, and it actually produced a pretty good hay crop. Yeah. I, I remember, too, as a, as a, as a kid, one of, um, actually was our 4-H agent at the time, they they moved in from further south and they had a, a dairy and, you know, they said they had fields that were managed, Johnson grass fields that were managed for hay production. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah the first time I was exposed to Johnson grass in a manning situation was in Mississippi when I was um, interviewing for a job there right after graduate school. And, yeah. I, and I came from Northeast Ohio where Johnson grass was kind of a a noxious weed. Grow crops. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, what in the world is that? And they're like, Johnson grass. So, yeah. Yep. It was actually imported to the United States by Colonel Johnson as a as a forage crop. So. Interesting. So, Chris, um, we're getting close to our time. But um, as, as we think about these um, uh, warm season forage types, are there any kind of just reminders or, or key things to consider when looking at including these into either a, a forage uh, production system for hay or stored forage or even then grazing. What are a few kind of take home tips that you might just remind people about? 
So, so there's there's no free lunch. We've got to manage these if we're going to use them in a grazing system um, or a hay production system. So it, it's really important that um, we focus on management, whether it's grazing or hay type management, make sure that our soil fertility is right, um, and, and then make sure we're harvesting or grazing at the correct growth stage. That's really a critical part of using these successfully in a forage system. One of the key things I want to drive home is that we, we should never in Kentucky base a forage system off of annuals. That's just a really bad idea. The most productive forage system is going to be based off of well-adapted perennials that are supplemented with some annuals within that system. I did want to mention one other place that I think annuals can fit into um, forage systems, and that's where we fed hay at. I forgot to talk about that earlier, but a lot of times we'll feed hay in the winter months, and um, those areas will be pretty drastically disturbed by the time we make it to spring. And one of our management practices in the past is that we try to get it smoothed up and seed fescue back there, but usually it ends up full of uh, of spiny amaranth or other weed, summer annual weeds. So a better practice may be to actually smooth those areas up, and as soon as the soil gets warm enough, go ahead and seed a sorghum sedan grass or a mixture of sorghum sedan grass and millet crabgrass on that area. And, and what we find when we do that is that, especially with the sorghum sedan grass, it gives a very quick canopy closure. We really limit the amount of uh, summer annual weeds like spiny amaranth and pigweed that come up in those areas. So that can be another good fit for summer annuals in uh, the Commonwealth. All right, you ready for your quick quiz? Yep. Okay. Can I intercede a warm season into a cool season stain? Well, I work in extension, so the answer is it depends. And uh, generally speaking, if you've got a good, solid, cool season pasture, it's not going to work real well. So where, where it's going to work the best is where you have a very thin sod. And normally... Um, if you have a thin fescue sod, you know, broadcasting some crabgrass on in February, kind of as a frost seeding, can actually fill those spaces in between plants pretty well. Question number two, um, which kind of follows up to what you just said, ideal timing of planting some of the warm season annuals. So the, the ideal time to plant a summer annual like pearl millet or sorghum sudan grass is once the soil temperatures reach 60 to 65 degrees. So that's going to be sometime in um, early to mid-May in most parts of the state, depending where you're at. But you want that soil temperature to be up there so that that seed can germinate rapidly and come up. Question number three, um, potential animal disorders from warm season forages so there's two primary disorders that we think about and the first one was prussic acid that we talked about so that's in the sorghum species that's sudan grass sorghum sudan grass forage sorghum and johnson grass are all in the sorghum species and uh, and we can manage around that that occurs most often at first frost so at first frost we want to remove animals from those pastures and um, to avoid prussic acid poisoning. The second one that I wanted to mention was nitrate um, poisoning. And nitrate poisoning occurs when plant growth slows in pastures and hay fields. So what's happening is that plant in under high nitrogen fertilization. 
So what's happening is that plant's taking nitrogen up from the soil and before it gets a chance to uh, assimilate that nitrogen into amino acids and protein, um, growth slows in that plant. So we get an accumulation of nitrates in that plant. So the tricky thing about, about nitrate poisoning is that um, if we cut that forage for hay and we roll it up, dry it and roll it up, those nitrates are still there. And when we feed that hay in six months, they're still going to be there. So we can kill animals months later with high nitrate forage. So if you are in a drought stress and you suspect you have may have higher nitrate levels in your hay, get it tested. And that'll give you peace of mind and let you know how you can manage the feeding of that hay um, or if you should even feed it at all. And last question. If I was interested in learning more about um, these forages, where can I go to learn more about the varieties and establishment of some of these? And you mentioned sure. it a couple times, but uh, go ahead and let us know again. So, so we've got a great um, forages website. If you just search UKY forages, it'll be the first thing that pops up. There's variety trial information on there. There's grazing information. We've got a great series of summer annual publications. It's a series of six publications. The nice thing about those publications are that they're one page. So we've got a little bit about management on the front and then on the back, we've got a table. And that table's got everything in it that you need to know to grow those summer annuals. It's got seeding rates, seeding dates, uh, forage disorders, grazing management, hay management, everything you need to grow, know to grow that particular summer annual. Um, so that's available on our website or on the uh, UKY extension website. Just search uh, summer annual and um, those six publications should pop up. Excellent. Well, Chris, this has been uh, a lot of information and I think a lot of good information that helps people understand some of the differences in their options of thinking about summer forages and then thinking about whether or not it's going to be a forage that we might consider for hay versus silage or grazing. So I appreciate your time today. Um, is there any last kind of thoughts that you want to share before we let you go? Well, we're going to have a grazing school coming up. I don't know if this will be out before the grazing school, but uh, it's going to be a September 22nd, 23rd. It's going to be in Versailles. And if you're interested in grazing, whether you're a new grazer or a grazer that wants to learn a little bit of new information, I mean, this is a great opportunity. It's both hands-on and classroom. So probably one of the best uh, programs that we have in Kentucky, I would say. And if they're interested in, in signing up for that program, where can they go? Go to the UKY Forages webpage in the, there'll be a big blue button that says upcoming events. Just click on that and then click on grazing school. Great. That, that's perfect. Chris, I want to thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge on these forages. And um, this has been good. And uh, I'm sure that we'll have you back on again as, as we think about other considerations we we haven't even jumped into some of the cool season annuals and and those types of options and you mentioned the one of those in there that i i've been meaning to follow up on with uh you and the other forage specialists and that's the novel fescues so you'll probably be hearing back from me again to, to share some more information on some of these other forage options that we have Great. perfect thanks for having me on jeff you bet chris chris take care and i and i hope you guys still continue to get precipitation down your way that you need to keep things greening up. We're, we're getting into that time of the year where 
soil moisture is going to be important for those cool season grasses to hit into that secondary growth phase. Yep. All, All right, right, Chris, take, take care. care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Beef Bits podcast. We hope you found it enjoyable and informative. Be sure to subscribe to the Beef Bits podcast for future episodes as well as listen to previous ones. Until next time, be safe and reach out to your county extension office for more information on beef management topics.